you would remain standing for the reading of God's Word, we will be looking this evening in Psalm 36, and you can find it in your pew Bible on page 465 and 466. May we give our attention to the reading of God's holy word. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This ends the reading of God's holy word, and may he add his blessing to it. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we again come and say, speak, for we need the voice of our God to impact and transform our thinking, our living, and our hearts. And so, Lord, would it please you to make Jesus known that whatever distractions we might have, they might be cast to the side, that we might, in fact, gaze upon Christ Jesus and therefore worship. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Not that you did not know this, but we are Smyrna Presbyterian Church. If you did not know, that is who we are. Why do I share that? Let me tell you something about what Smyrna Presbyterian Church believes. We believe in what is called Reformed Theology. At times, people have tried to define Reformed Theology, and often if you've heard those definitions, you've been curious as to what actually did they just say. What does it mean to be Reformed? Popular opinion would say something to the effect of, well, Reformed people believe in the doctrine of predestination or election. And that is true, but that's often taken out of context. And so when we talk about Reformed theology, what is it that we mean? If you've been with us recently, we did a long Sunday school series on covenant theology, and you heard at least a couple of times us say something to the effect of, well, Reformed theology is covenant theology, or covenant theology is Reformed theology. Well, what is it that we want to get across when we say that? What's the best definition of Reformed theology? 
I think it was Dr. Sproul who said something to this effect. It is, it's our doctrine of God. And what does that mean? It's not when we say Reformed theology that our doctrine of God is so drastically different from others. It's that what we believe about our doctrine of God does not just start on page one and we go to something else. Our doctrine of God begins on page one and it carries to the end. And so when we talk about what is it that we believe as Reformed theology, we hold high the doctrine of God. It's our doctrine of God that informs what we might say our soteriology. That is the doctrine of salvation. Or anthropology, the doctrine of man. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. Eschatology, and so on and so on. What we are suggesting is that our doctrine of God informs everything in which we believe. We begin and we center and we finish with God. B.B. Warfield, he was a Princeton theologian, defined such a doctrine as it's the majesty of God that pervades all of life and all of experience. Let me read that again. It's the sight of the majesty of God that pervades all of life and all of experience. It's the Isaiah 6. It's the Bible. And so when we talk about Reformed theology, what we're suggesting is really more what took place at the Reformation. We call it Reformed theology. What they would have said, it is Reformed theology according to the Word of God. And so when you're trying to ask yourself, what does Reformed theology mean? What is the best work on Reformed theology? It's the Bible. Now, I know you did not come here tonight to get a lecture on Reformed theology, and that is not necessarily our point. My point to you in answering what is Reformed theology is we all have a theology, but the way we live demonstrates our most true theology. How we live demonstrates honestly what we believe. Perhaps you could call it your functional theology. And more times than not, how do we learn about our functional theology? Well, it's in times of trial or tribulation. Sometimes we might say, well, adversity, what adversity does is it, it, it provides an opportunity to grow and develop character. And that is true. But it also reveals what we really believe and what we already are. And so what we get here tonight is a little bit of David's functional theology. He's in trouble again. And what is it that he believes? How does he respond to such adversity? And I only have two points. Total depravity versus total majesty. Total depravity versus total majesty. Now, when we say that term total depravity, I understand that term alone carries quite a bit of weight. There's a lot of people who have tried to give a lot of explanation to what that word means, and we often use it inaccurately. When we say total depravity, often what is given emphasis is the word total. And what we say is our sinful nature is as corrupt as it possibly can be, and that is incorrect. 
That is the good news for you tonight. You could, in fact, be far worse. When we talk about total depravity and we give the word total, what we are talking about is not the degree of, but the extent of. I think it was months ago I was teaching something of this nature to the youth, and I was trying to give them what would be a practical illustration to describing total depravity or the extent of our depravity. And the illustration that I used was, think about three different glasses. One glass has water in it, and only water. It's, it's pure. It's healthy. It's good. It's lively. It's righteous, if you wanted to use that term. The next glass is filled entirely with poison. That would be to say it is totally poisonous to the degree. It cannot be more poisonous. It is full of nothing but poison. But then there's a third glass where you have water and you have drops of poison. And we would say that is total depravity. If I gave you that glass, you would not drink it any more than you would the full glass of poison because you know every part of that glass is corrupt. That's what we're talking about here, the idea that corruption has touched every part of our life. And that's what David is suggesting here in verse 1. He says, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. What is he saying there? Well, it's actually quite powerful. He says that transgression speaks to the heart. When you look at the Hebrew there, the word there for speak is only up to this point been used by God or to describe God. And it is a translation that you might say, thus saith the Lord. And so when, when David says transgression speaks to the wicked, what is he demonstrating? Well, the Bible has suggested that the divine authority comes from God, but David is using the same language to demonstrate a point of what it means to be wicked, that our hearts are controlled authoritatively so by sin, Almost as though it's divine. There is no way in which we would not sin. We are in fact not controlled by God, but by sin. And so David says transgression speaks. It speaks to the heart. It has a depth to it, an authority and controlling factor. And then he outlines what that looks like. Sometimes especially on Sundays in which we observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we have a confession of sin. And, and at times, we say something to the effect of, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. David is demonstrating that here. That is what the wicked life looks like. There is the wickedness in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. It's in your thoughts. And what does he say? It speaks deep in the heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Now that is a statement that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because it wasn't too long ago that David had written Psalm 14, in which we read, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. 
And yet here, David adds something to it, doesn't he? It's not the foolish that says it. It's the wicked. It's the wicked who says there is no God, and he has no fear. Dr. Dale Ralph Davis, he calls it a fear that is on steroids. It's not the reverence. It's not the respect. It is a dreadful fear. There is none of it in the heart of the wicked. And so David's not saying here that this is a foolish statement, although it is. He's saying it's a wicked statement. Wicked people say there is no God. What they're saying is, well, God's not relevant. He's not important. He has no bearing on my life. And yes, you could say those are foolish, and they are. But David is saying, but fundamentally, they are wicked. They're being controlled by a wicked heart. And you could ask the question, why is there no fear? Well, it's because, David tells you, there is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. He does not see God. He sees himself. When he looks in the mirror, he sees himself and he flatters himself. He has a false view of God, which inevitably leads to a false view of self. And it leads to false views of sin. And that is not a shock to you. You live in the world, and we recognize the world would say things about sin. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that bad. It was something small. Perhaps you have even had those thoughts yourself. It was a simple mistake. I didn't really mean it. We don't have a right view of sin. The wicked don't care because they see no consequences for their actions, for they see no God. They see themselves. They're wicked in their heart, and it has influenced the way in which they think, their thoughts. David says it's in their words. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. There's a corruption that has taken place in his thoughts, and it's not hard to see how it flows out of his mouth. Isn't that what we read in the Gospel of Luke? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. When we have a wicked heart, we have wicked speech. And I don't think what he is suggesting is that everything that comes out is intentionally wicked. Perhaps it could just simply be it's gossip or slander or it's empty talk. But all of it will lead to a furthering degree of sin or a furthering degree of wickedness. They're troubled and deceitful words. It's evil. And it's the exact opposite, isn't it, of what we learn about Jesus that there was no deceit in his mouth. It's that imagery that he paints for us. Good trees, will they bear good fruit? Bad trees bear bad fruit. It should cause us to slow down and ask, how do we speak? How do we speak to people? How do we speak to our children, our spouses, 
brothers and sisters in Christ, co-workers, neighbors. It's a heart matter. You know, what's difficult about that is what you and I have to come to terms with is, well, words matter. Words matter because they, well, they demonstrate what's in your heart. That's hard for me. I want to say things like, I didn't mean to say that when my family has to call me out on that. And then I have to admit later on, I did mean to see that because my heart is sinful and I need to be forgiven of it. David says that the wicked are sinful in their thoughts and in their words and in their actions. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. The place of rest has become a place of plotting. Where there should be much Sabbath, there is much evil. And intention for evil. He has committed himself to evil. There is no commitment to truth and to righteousness. Perhaps you're seeing that comparison. It sounds oddly like Psalm 1. That there's a wicked and a righteous person. That the life of the wicked, it goes from one degree of sin to another. The issue of right thinking and how it leads to right living. It might entirely be appropriate to say, this is the greatest summary of wickedness. Yes, Paul picks up on it in Romans chapter one. And yes, he might spell it out a little bit more in saying the wicked suppress the truth of God for a lie. They worship creation rather than their creator. But I think what David is doing here is he wants you to recognize what is sin. He wants you to evaluate your life and your heart and to have an accurate view of sin. And that is very important as a believer. You and I need to know what is the doctrine of sin and how does it influence and affect me? And you can say, this is very difficult. Who would begin a psalm like this? And I think what David is saying to you and to me is, slow down and make sure you have an accurate view of sin. When we think about sin, even our own, if we rightly understand it, we would pause to make sure we do not give too much credit to sin. It is, imp- it is possible to look at sin and say, it has power in me and over me. It's authoritative. It's a Goliath, you might say, in this life. But sin is not sovereign. Sin in the life of a believer is not in total control. It cannot be if you are in Christ. And so I think what David is suggesting is we as Christians need to put sin in its proper place. As big and as strong and as mighty as it might sound, we need to shrink it down to size. How bad is sin? It is bad. 
But what David does in verse five is he abruptly changes direction and he says, then you need to know who God is. If you are in Christ and you are plagued by a sin or many sins, you need to know who God is. You need to know what he is like. And isn't that what Jesus is trying to encourage his disciples? Do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. And so David almost stops in his tracks. He's told you what's wrong in the world. And then he says, look up. Make sure you know who God is. Let me tell you what he is like. He takes a drastically different approach than Psalm 1 at this moment. You see, Psalm 1 is comparing the life of the wicked and the life of the righteous. David has a bigger view. He's comparing the life of the wicked and God. What is sin versus God? And he wants you to know who is God. What is he like? Have assurance when you are in Christ Jesus. And so what does he say? Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. He says, the wicked do not fear God. But he doesn't just say, well, know that God loves you. Did you see the words that he uses? It's the word that we've talked about. I won't quiz you on it. It's that Hebrew word, hesed. It's the never-ending, never-quitting, never-stopping love of God that pursues his people. David doesn't say, just know that God loves you. He says that no God is always pursuing you with his love. This is a covenant love. Covenant, covenant, he says. He's going to talk about this covenant love three times in this psalm. He wants you to know this is what God is really like. If you are in Christ, he has bestowed his covenant love upon you. And he wants you to know more than the fact that God has given to his people a covenant love. What else has he done? He says, don't just know that there's one higher and stronger and more powerful in generalities. Know him specifically. What does he say? Your steadfast love, oh Lord, that's my name. It's Yahweh. It's my covenant name. It's, it's, a bed, it's that interesting picture in Isaiah 43 when he says, I've called you by name. But the one who's called you by name says, call me by name. I am God and I have given my love to you. It's my covenant name and it's my covenant love. It cannot fail. It will not quit. It will not end. Know that I love you. And it is God himself who loves you. It's an incredible reality. And do you know what takes place? Malachi is going to finish and Matthew's going to begin. And do you know what you're going to miss in the New Testament? You will not see Lord in all caps because it's been replaced with the name of Jesus. Yahweh saves. 
He's given to you his covenant son. He has a love for his people, a name that he wants to be called, and he's given himself to you. And so David is looking and he says, yes, there is sin, but if you're a Christian, you need to know who is God and what is he really like. He is a covenant God. He's great. He's wide. He's large. He's majestic. And he has a love for you. And it is fulfilled in Jesus. And then he says, your faithfulness, your love extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Have you ever asked the question, how do you know God to be faithful? It's because you have his word. You have the objectivity of what it means to be faithful. God could have said to his people, I am faithful and not revealed himself through his word. But because you and I have his word, he's given you the objectivity of what it means to be faithful. When you want to know what it means, you open your Bible and there it is, faithful, faithful, faithful all throughout because you have a faithful God. I love what Charles Spurgeon says here. He's talking about the faithfulness of God. He never fails, nor forgets, nor falters, nor forfeits his word. To every word of threat or promise, prophecy or covenant, the Lord has exactly adhered. For he is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. God is faithful to the clouds. It is immeasurable. You cannot measure the faithfulness of God. And then he says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. He's faithful and he's righteous. He's, he's reliably right. He does things in the right manner. And he gives you an image to help you understand how right is God. He is righteous like a mountain, something that is large. It is, it is immovable. It doesn't change. It matters not the storms of this world. The mountain still stands. And David is saying, that is the righteousness of your God. So very righteous that at the salvation of the elect, he does not forfeit it. He righteously saves you. Have you considered that as a believer? You are saved by grace. You are saved righteously by grace. God has not sacrificed any bit of his righteousness to redeem his people. He's righteous like the mountains. He is the judge. He makes judgments. And isn't that incredible that God doesn't sit on the sidelines? He acted before history. He acts in history. He will act at the end of history. God is at work and he is a judge we cannot be fooled into thinking that the love of God means he is not a righteous judge. The two go together. He is righteous and he is the judge. Man and beast, you save 
O Lord, there is a sense that all experience some care of God himself. I do not think David here is meaning to say save as it pertains to your soul. I think he's preserving the life of all of which he's created. Everyone knows the fatherly care to some degree of our God. Every breath that you and I take is utterly dependent upon him. And it's because man and beast are saved and sustained by God. And then he says, how precious is your steadfast love. It's to draw your attention that there is no gem, there is no stone, there is no rock that is of greater value. He's adding value to the covenant love and he's saying it's ultimate. There's nothing better. There's nothing greater. And it's as if he's saying the greatness of God, well, it it shows itself in the goodness of God being extended to his people that you experience not just the power of God, but the provision of God in your life. Because he's not just powerful. He's a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He's a father. And so David says, the wicked, they don't know what it means to take refuge in the shadow of your wings. But your people do. That there is protection. There is delight to be had in the presence of of God. And isn't that a beautiful picture that God both protects and provides? Isn't it that picture that David talks about in Psalm 23? That in the presence of your enemies, I made a table for you. I prepared a table that you might eat in the presence of your enemies. Of course, David's not they're saying that to scare you. He's saying there's nothing that can touch you apart from the hand of God. He is utterly protective and he provides for his people in every way. Or as sometimes you hear us pray, he provides in the manner in which you stand in need of. That is your God. And how does he protect and provide? He provides what David would call a feast. He uses abundant and an imagery that there is a feast of provision for you, a feast in the house of God, in the presence, in the fellowship of God. You have a feast. Now that's a wonderful statement and you already knew something about that. God's not bound by a holy place as the Jewish people might have said. That Jesus being incarnated, living a perfect life, dying, resurrecting, ascending into heaven, has promised that his Holy Spirit would come and he would dwell in the hearts of his people. That's why Jesus with confidence looks at his disciples and he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. For in my Father's house, there are many rooms and I am going to prepare a place for you. Isn't that an incredible reality for you who are a Christian tonight? that God prepares a place for you in his house. How much greater that presence when the rooms come together, when the people of God come together. What an expression of feast, of abundance, of enjoyable peace. And that is what David is saying God is like. 
that yes, he comes and he dwells in your hearts. But how much greater do you understand God when you're with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? And what greater feast than to come into the worship of God, to see God, both in sacrament and in praying and preaching and singing. There's an abundant feast. David says there's a river of delight. Have you considered your worship this night? Is that how you define it? That this is a feast. This is no simple meal of mediocrity. It's a feast to be enjoyed. Eat as much as you like. For it is of God that you take and eat of. And he says, come, this is a river of delight. He goes on to say that he is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. It's an incredible picture that God is the fountain of life. You have life, but God is the fountain There is no life apart from him. And he says, come, for I have an abundance of it. It's got to be the image that John had in mind in his prologue when he's writing and trying to tell people, well, who is Jesus? What is it that he says In him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, John and David, they see the same thing, that at the center, here is God. There's life and light. Again, Spurgeon says, we need no candle to see the sun. We see it by its own radiance and then see everything else by the same luster. We have light in Christ. We have life in Christ. He shines in the darkness that you and I might understand all things. It's why we believe in what we would say the sufficiency of Scripture. You go to your Bible. You do not need the world to understand the Word. But you do need, to, you do need the Word if you are to understand all that is within the world. It's that good. It's that right. And it is meant to be a delight, a feast for you and for me. Do you know why that's good news? Because if God is the fountain of life and he is light, it means two things. You did nothing to get it. And it means there is nothing that could ever darken or kill it. It will not end because this light came from the fountain of life. What is David doing here? He he sees the majesty of God and it gives him the right understanding of the wicked. There's no way that the wicked can compare with who God is and what he is like. And so he says, you have fed me with your steadfast love from the heavens. Please, O God, continue to do so. Do not hold back your love from me. One commentator says, turn it on and continue to keep it activated. 
I want to always know the love of God. When you have that image, that understanding of God, it gives you a very clear picture of the wicked, doesn't it? You need not worry. You need not be stressed or anxious because those who seek to destroy him, that is David in this picture, those who look strong and successful, those who perhaps look like they are towering over him will all fall before the presence of God. And there is no hope for them. They cannot, as David says, rise. They are unable to rise. It's a psalm of much joy and yet of judgment. It speaks to everybody. If you are in Christ, God is giving to you a picture of his majesty that you might see him and not be overwhelmed by your depravity. That is Jesus' purpose. He came to seek and to save what is lost. He is making you right, fitting the bride before the bridegroom. And yet, if you are not in Christ, you need to understand you are the wicked here. You are without hope unless the light and life of Christ shine on you. This is a psalm of joy and it is a psalm of judgment. Be not the wicked one who says, there is no God, but rather have your eyes fixed on Jesus. In a few moments' time, we'll sing our closing hymn. I chose it intentionally because I think what David is saying in New Testament terms is, do you want to know how you deal with sin? You turn your eyes upon Jesus. It's a moment of you have to fixate your mind not on the world, but on Jesus, on Christ. I do pray that that is your experience this night, that that is the application of your life, that when you see sin in your life, you do confess it and you do repent of it. But believer, have your eyes and your heart fixated on Christ, the river of delight, who in him there is the spring of living water. Come and drink, and drink to your full. Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we have such an honest word of truth that comes from you, that we are not to be men and women who are naive of, of evil and of wickedness, but we are not to be afraid of it if we are in Christ Jesus because we have the majesty of God demonstrated in the person and work of Christ that death is not the final say or victor, but Christ himself. And so may we have our, our hearts, our longings cast upon you that we might see Jesus. Again, O oh Lord, I do pray if there are those even this night who hear and that is not the truth of their heart, would you open their eyes that they might see Jesus, bringing to them the glorious picture of our God. And perhaps for the very first time in their light, they might see the fountain of life, that light might be 
shined upon them now and forevermore. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.